This is Katie, and welcome to episode 12 of Veteran Entrepreneur Talks. Each week, we bring you the story of an entrepreneur who successfully made the transition from military service to building a business. This podcast is powered by the Veteran Owned Collective, a private community for veteran entrepreneurs. In this episode, we talk with Marine Corps veteran Nick Wyatt and Army veteran Drew Everett, childhood friends and co-founders of Apex Gear Co. We talk about how they turned a third-generation family business into a fresh, modern brand, what it's like to move from idea to execution in less than 60 days, and their goals of building a respected company that incorporates fun, fulfilling work, and time with friends. For show notes, go to veteranownedcollective.com slash podcast. Let's get started. Joining me today are Drew Everett and Nick Wyatt from Apex Gear Code. Drew is joining us from Noblesville, Indiana, and Nick is calling in from Los Angeles. Nick and Drew, welcome to Veteran Entrepreneur Talks. Hi, thank you for having us. Yeah, glad to be here. Looking forward to our, our conversation today, and I always like to get started by asking for a brief overview of your military service. Oh, sure. I'll jump in first. Uh, so I joined the Marines in 2006, and uh, you know I went to Paris Island, South Carolina, and then was went into infantry. And I'm actually, I did a, the assaultman training, so I, my specialty was rocket launchers and demolitions. Uh, I was stationed in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Uh, after that, we my first deployment was on the 22nd Mew. We went on a med float over, so we hopped around Europe a little bit, did some anti-piracy stuff off the coast of Somalia, which sounds more exciting than it is. I was on an aircraft carrier, and Somali pirates aren't buccaneers, so they weren't really messing with us. <laughs> so basically, we set off the coast of uh, Somalia for about 60 days, then we hopped around the rest of uh, the Mediterranean, a little bit of uh, the Middle East. Then uh, my second deployment was in Afghanistan. We were in the Helmand and Farad provinces. And uh, yeah, I was there from 08 to 09. Uh, did my combat tour in Nauzad and uh, different parts of the Helmand province. Came back and got out in 2010. All right, Drew? Yeah, I was in the Army. Uh, enlisted in 2001. I was an infantryman. And uh, stationed Bombholder, Germany in the 1st Armored Division. Uh, all I remember is shining a lot of boots and drinking a lot of beer. We didn't, uh, when, I, when I was in, we, we didn't do much. Uh, that unit rotated um, down to Iraq in 2007, I believe, the battalion I was in. Uh, so a little bit after I was out and uh, had a pretty, pretty posh European uh, experience. So not terrible. Yeah, met, you know, Bradley fighting vehicles and uh, green camis and Alice packs, and that's, you know. Okay. And, and I understand that you two actually met before you served in the military. You go way back? Yeah, we... Uh, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, we, uh, we grew up in North Carolina together, grew up in the same neighborhood. Drew had moved there from, uh, I believe uh, he walked from Tennessee with his family. Uh, mm-hmm. They put everything they had on their backs, and they just kind of <laughs> trudged into our neighborhood. and. They found, you know, an empty lot and just kind of stick <laughs> right. their claim to that. Uh, <laughs> no, right. We grew up together. We were friends from about age 10 or 11 and all the way to this day. That's awesome. I'm, I'm interested to hear, you know, as uh, we start this conversation about what it's like working with a friend, but I'll, I'll save that. I'll save that conversation for a little later. Um, so uh, you- oh, my God. <laughs> I have so much to talk about. Okay, great. I'll make it <laughs> um, Okay, so you are both uh, the co-owners of Apex Gear Company. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Tell me, tell me a little bit about um, what your business does. 
Okay, uh, what we are is a, uh, yeah, we're an outdoor company, but we focus uh, primarily on the uh, alpha performance insert. It's essentially a uh, full-ranging orthotic uh, type, type product that's American-made. The only one that's American-made, it lasts forever. It helps a lot of people with different foot-related problems, back problems, knee problems. It's great for sports, and that's essentially what we do, and we've, you know, been manufacturing that here in the United States for uh, a little less than a year now. Okay. And, and how did two guys from North Carolina get into this type of business? You got to tell me that. Well, um, sure, go ahead, yeah. So Nick's family owns and operates a, a chain of uh, a local chain of shoe repair and orthotics labs in North Carolina. And his dad's a, uh, a pedorthist. So that means you got to go to school and you got to get certified and learn everything about, about feet and feet problems and, and all this sort of stuff and how to correct it. So uh, how we got into this was about 20 years ago, invented, designed and invented and patented a custom off-the-shelf uh, product. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, we saw an, oppor- we saw an e-commerce retail opportunity. It's something that, that had done well locally uh, in brick and mortar and helping a ton of people and just, I mean, the reviews were overwhelming and, and the, uh, and we thought, you know, we could probably do more with this and, and help more, help more people, um, and take this to a bigger scale. So, um, just kind of a classic old school product, uh, new school marketing approach type combination. So we put our heads down on it and figured out what would be the best way to take this to market on a large scale, leveraging e-commerce and social media marketing and, and how can we put a brand around this versus just a, a great product, but, um, you know, with a local focus, how, you know, so that's. And when you guys, I mean, it sounds like you saw an opportunity and you wanted to, like you had said, put like kind of a new, newer modern spin on it. How long did it take you to actually go from idea to execution? We talked to a lot of folks who see an opportunity and I think it's, it's difficult to go from idea to execution. So what, what are the steps that you took between like, Hey, this sounds like a great opportunity. We should jump on this and actually getting to the point where you started this business. Well, this is going to be pretty funny. I think that Drew and I have similar personalities when it comes to this type of thing. We're both the kind of guy that when we see an iPad sitting next to a cash register, we're like, Ooh, I want that. And we buy it immediately. We don't really think of the, like uh, about all the, the next level things that we've got to do from there on out, like actually being able to afford it. So, uh, it's actually funny. So Drew called me up. Uh, he had an idea of how to better market the alpha product that was a different name at the time. And we started getting into conversations over several weeks. And essentially, it was about mid-August that we started conversations. And the company was online and uh, actually starting to make sales by mid-October. So about 60 days. Oh. So uh, And to be fair, the original manufacturing of the product, the, uh, all the R and D and everything else that had already gone into it. That took, you know, decades. We had the benefit of my father and my uncle, uh, already putting in the hard work of my grandfather before that. So the real big thing was we saw an opportunity and we saw a way to do it. We had conversations with my dad, my uncle, um, on kind of taking over that element for them and moving forward while they focused on their shoe repair chain. And, uh, they agreed and we just kind of just powered forward. We just took the initiative and said, all right, let's do it. Do either of you have a business background? 
Uh, well, I have an economics degree, and so does Drew, actually. So, yeah, we both have at least degrees in that. And Drew's been working in the corporate world. Okay, Drew, what what, what were you doing in the corporate world? Uh, yeah, I was in B2B uh, enterprise sales uh, for a Fortune 500 company and uh, later went into enablement and various business analyst you know, type roles. Okay, so but but this is actually the first time you had started a company that you're responsible for soups and nuts. Yeah, well, yeah, and I love it because um, it's that classic, you know, feeling of of being at work, and you have uh, why don't we do it this way? Well, you know, and then you know your ideas either get stolen by other people or shot down immediately. Uh, but but you know, as an entrepreneur, you're not only is your destiny in your hands, but also all of the fun, cool things you want to do. Any, you know, that should be yellow. That should, you know, all right, well, now it is. I mean, just immediately. So it's extremely gratifying in that way. Um, yeah. So I, I want to talk a little bit more about what happened between August and October, like this frenzy of activity. Okay. So you get a call from Drew and he says, mm-hmm. I got this idea. So what actually happened next? What did you do next? And what did you do over the course of those two months to get it to launch? Sure. So after the first call, he, like the first idea was just, you know, Drew was trying to get more information about the product. Uh, you know, he had known it for years. He had worn it for years, but he was trying to think about it as just a, you know, maybe he can he can sell this product to the market that he was in up in the Indianapolis area. And so we started just having conversations and I started getting uh, kind of excited about this prospect as well. We started having marketing ideas. How do we frame this? How do we, what do we call this? How do we sell this to a different younger generation that's going to be online. It's a, you know, we, it had always been kind of seen uh, within my family's business as this over the counter uh, foot solution. But one thing that it really did great uh, was that it was a performance product. And my dad's run uh, six marathons, uh, 13 half marathons in it. And he's done that all injury free. And so we saw it as you know, it, it's more than that. It like it helped people with their day to day lives, even if it wasn't, uh, even if they didn't have pain. Maybe just at the end of the day, it was no fatigue. So we started to reframe. We started to have conversations. It's like, okay, how do we make this different? And we got quickly excited. And, like after a few conversations, we were we just looked at each other essentially, and we're like, are we doing this? And like, yep, we're doing this. So, I mean, quickly it went from. Me coming up with uh, imagery and and stuff for our website, Drew uh, getting us like getting our incorporation done, uh, and Drew started quickly uh, working uh, looking for manufacturers up in the Indiana area so that we could move all operations in his local area. And I'll let Drew talk about how he went through that process. Yeah, so a lot of parallel activities, kind of divide and conquer. On you've got the front end and the back end. Uh, Nick's been outstanding with you know, web development, marketing, content development. I mean, everything that you would see looking at us is 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 directly responsible uh, to him. And then, um, yeah, all the legal stuff, uh, the administrative stuff on the back end, just everything has a turn time and a process and a fee. So just getting that in quickly. Um, those are the things that don't really change. It doesn't really matter what kind of business you want to go into. You're going to have to register with your state. You're going to have you have to get a retail merchant certification, right? All these sort of things, get an EIN. So those are sort of the constant things that you can do in the background while you're while you're debating what it should look like on the front end. So um, you can cover a lot of ground quickly if you want. And 
then yeah, I mean, Google's your friend. You have to find people you can trust and people in the early days, it was important for me to have access to all the different pieces of operation, whether it's the product or the packaging or whatever, not only from a quality standpoint, but from a learning standpoint, I've never done this before. I want to be as close to this as possible. And you know, the more, you know, the the better decisions you can make. So we started doing that, reaching out, finding manufacturers. First, we had to learn how this was manufactured, what it's actually called, what the process is. Not all machines are created equal, that sort of thing. And then you start finding places that want to take on your, your volume. And we're, you know, we're talking a, a small amount of volume in the early days. So um, not everybody wants to take that on. You know, a lot of, especially in, in the injection mold world, they want to take on the, the, the big stuff, you know. Um, so you got to find people you want to work with. And I found uh, this great guy up in Kokomo, Indiana, and it's about an hour from my house and he runs uh, a midsize shop. And, you know, he reminds me of Nick's dad, Ricky and his uncle, Tony, the guys that made the original alpha. And it was just, it was like a perfect fit and he was willing to give us a flyer and, uh, it's been great. So, you know, and then it's like, all right, well, how do we ship it to people? Right. So you just start checking off the problems. Well, you ship it to them in a box. Okay. What box? Well, Walmart sells boxes. Uh, we don't like that box. We want to make our, you know, what is the experience? How do, how do we want this to come across to people from start to finish? Not only the website, but when they cut the tape and, and open it up on their doorstep. So just working through all that stuff and finding people to provide it. Mm-hmm. Getting quotes, doing designs. Like we, you know, we put a sticker in every box. All right. What do you want the sticker to look like? You know, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just a tale of two halves, front end, back end, and just divide and conquer and research. And we benefited greatly from having uh, awesome mentors in Ricky and Tony um, who had who had seen and done a lot of this stuff on the back end and could really kind of coach us. And uh, where do you guys sell now? Do you, do you sell on your website as well as uh, wholesale? Um, uh, we have a few yeah. wholesale uh um, operations there in North Carolina that we send to, but primarily we sell on our website. Uh, we're moving towards some other avenues online as well, but uh, right now it's primarily through our website. Okay, so so once you had gotten uh, all the back end uh, logistics and operations figured out, and you got the website set up and everything, like tell me what tell me what the launch was like when you actually went live on your website. <laughs> so we were debating for like weeks. We're like, okay, what's our official launch date? We got all in our heads about that. And it's like, you know what? Our official launch date is just going to be the day that we're done and we're ready to go. So like, we would be like, oh, should it be on a Wednesday? Should it be on a Monday? And we, I, I think we tried to overthink it and over like, like get super intelligent about it. And like, oh, it should be at the beginning of a week or it should be at the end of the week or it should be in the middle of the week. I mean, and we were like, we finally, we had finished everything. We're like, okay, it's ready to go. Are we waiting until Wednesday? It's like, no, launch right now. We just push the button and let it go. So it wasn't necessarily overly dramatic. It was exciting. We started putting out advertising as quickly as we could. Uh, you know, through social media, we were putting up posts. We were um, boosting those posts, things like that, uh, that was just getting our names out there, using our personal networks just to kind of get the word out. Uh, it wasn't, uh, we didn't make, create like a huge, crazy launch party. Uh, it all happened so quickly. I mean, roughly 60 days from the day that we even had inception, we had little time to, to get out there, but we figured we've got the product, we've got the pack, we got the packaging down, 
Mm-hmm. We got the website ready. Why not just go ahead and, and launch? And we did. So that, and that was in October of last year. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Late October. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So you're what, nine months in or so, like, I, I like to ask people, you know, what, what was your first year likes, but I guess this is, you know, what's your first, what's, what has your first six, nine months been like and what unexpected challenges have you come up against? It's probably a long list, but maybe <laughs> top one or two that come to mind. Well, All right, everybody strap first, in. Here he goes. <laughs> <laughs> first, first year, everyone should know that within the first six months there of you opening a business, you're going to have a global pandemic that's going to shut down an economy. That's just guaranteed business. That's business 101. If they don't teach that in business school, quit that college immediately. Um, no, but uh, yeah, it was it was interesting because we we launched straight out right before Christmas, and we did see a boost actually early on because of that. Ebbs and you know, there's always ebbs and flows. Cash flow is always a major factor that I would uh, I would say um, always trying to predict what type of cash flow you're going to have. So you know, especially in a manufacturing business like ours, we've always got bills coming due. We've always got um, new orders that we've got. We've always got to maintain inventories. And then, unfortunately, uh, you know, we did have the global pandemic, and that you know affected us the same way it affected lots of businesses. We didn't actually have to close down. But, you know, people are buying less uh, things when they're not like sure when they're going to get their next paycheck or what's going on. So that was definitely a, um, you know, it's been a wild ride. Uh, I'm interested to see how the next, how the rest of the year pans out for us. Um, But it's been good for the most part, other than, you know, obviously things that are going on with the pandemic and things are starting to starting to look uh, a lot better now. As far as uh, unexpected hurdles, uh, initially, I think finding our niche was our, our biggest hurdle in just the regular course of business, right? So we had a product that we felt worked, that it helped a lot of people, but it was in a market that was kind of oversaturated. It had really big names that were in really big stores. You know, you're not just competing with, uh, you know, the top competitor. We were competing with Walmart and Target and other massive vendors where a lot of people spend a lot of their money. And so we had to find a way to penetrate our market in a completely different way. And so when I say finding our niche, you know, we went heavy on the athletics, heavy on the outdoors, heavy on the made in America. And we really tried to just lean into the things that we felt were a, uh, you know, better about our product and our company, but also that we could find our niche in our market. Cause you know, you don't want to try and take over, uh, you know, if you're a shoe man, if you're trying to get in the shoe game, you're not going to beat Nike. So how do you try to adapt and how do you offer a product that is, you know, it's something that maybe Nike's not addressing well enough for that specific audience. And so that, yeah. that was our, I think, at least on my, from my perspective, uh, the unexpected, like, you know, roadblock that we really had to figure out early on and, and continuing to figure out every day. That's a, that's an ever evolving, uh, issue that we're going to continue to contend with and, you know, adapt to. Mm-hmm. And now that you feel like you found that, that niche, how does that change how you communicate what kinds of content or advertising you do packaging? How does that impact your business? How that you've, you've found it aside from the obvious, like we know who we're talking to and that probably right. writing, et cetera. Right. I mean, it's everything. I mean, the, the colors that you use to, to 
put on your website, the tone of the website, the, the actual way that you communicate on there. You know, if you're not trying to become an over-the-counter thing, then you don't want to sound overly medical. If you're catering to a running community, you need to speak their lingo. And you also, not only that, but you don't want to, like a lot of the time, too many people, I think, use uh, loaded phrases that seem false. Uh, you know, it's like, it's like a mission statement where they cram as much uh, information into a singular sentence as humanly possible. And it's like people start to gloss over and roll their eyes because, you know, you've just jammed that this is an innovative technology that can take over. And it's like, okay, blah, blah, blah. you know, you're, you're saying a lot of things without saying anything at all. And so, you know, I, I think we really started to learn and that our audience, our, our market, the athletic market is, you know, they're, they're highly educated and they don't need to be um, oversold on something. And so sometimes you've got to, uh, you know, try not try your best not to overdo it. Uh, you know, and that was one thing that I, you know, I have struggled with continuously because you learn from, you know, you learn from your audience, you learn from your customers. And so that's, you know, a way that we've had to continuously adapt. Like I said, like color palettes, like everything matters, the tone, how how humorous you are, how not humorous you are, how serious it is, how emotional it is. Like every single element of your messaging is important, especially with the audience that you go after, because everybody's motivated to do something for some reason. Like people don't buy products because they just are trying to fill a vacuum of things in their house. They're trying to like come to some sort of conclusion with their life, right? So you don't you don't buy the nicest TV because you have a jar because you have a large wall you're doing it because you're trying to fill some sort of a need. And that's, you know, what we want to try and make sure that we do with our, with the way that we message to our customers. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think um, there's a lot of things that people feel, they don't know why they do them. Like I buy this brand over mm-hmm. that brand. I go to this restaurant. Right. restaurant. There's a lot of uh, what you just said kind of going on behind the scenes unbeknownst to all yeah. of us. Um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, Drew, if you have something that comes to mind, like it sounds like Nick's got quite a, quite a list there of things, but your perspective, <laughs> it's what? all he thinks about. I, it detects, I can't, that's like, right. a, <laughs> enough already, you know? that's good. It means he's a, fully immersed and, oh, you know, yeah. but uh, do you have anything to add to the, you know, the challenges that maybe you weren't anticipating that happened in the first six to nine months operations? Yeah. Um, you, you know, we had this whole, you know, we, we manufacture a product, right? We make a product and um, you know, there was, there's a, there's a, a, I don't know if it's a climate or an attitude or, a, you know, a belief that, you know, you can't, it's difficult or expensive uh, to manufacture in America. It's just not cost effective. It's not scalable, um, things like that. And, um, you know, we heard a lot of that and uh, from a lot of places, but it's, but it's not true. I mean, I'm not sure, you know, I can't give you a business case for every industry, but in our industry, at least it's, it's alive and well, and it should be growing. There's a ton of great, uh, mold makers and, uh, and factories in the States, especially in Indiana, but there's a lot going on. And, um, you know, if I have to, if it costs me another nickel a unit or 15 cents a unit or whatever to make it here, I mean, what are we, what are we talking about? I mean, I, you know, if I sold 10 million units tomorrow and that 15 cents a unit starts being a big number, I'm still not going to care. I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not. Um, so yeah, I think just challenge status quo. Uh, don't be afraid to look in and find answers for yourself and do your own research. Don't just take things at face value. And if there's something that's really important to you, like manufacturing in America, then just do it anyway. And 
if you think that improves the value of your product, then you can probably charge another quarter to offset it. I don't know. I, I think it's also nothing be, revolutionary. <laughs> I, I mean, but I think that's also going to be revolutionary. Uh, sorry, not revolutionary. That's also going to be very important uh, with everything that's going on now and this kind of realization that our supply mm-hmm. chains have become overextended and like with outside of our control. I think the made in America trend, it was already growing, but I think it's going to yeah. be even bigger. <clears throat> so, yeah. Well, I and, hope so. And one it's, thing it's really I, important. And one thing I would say is like, you know, we got, we got even and silly with it. So when you get, like our boxes are printed and made right there in uh, Noblesville, Indiana. We manufacture our product uh, right up the road from Drew. We have stickers that are made and they're sent to us from another part of Indiana. And then we have like uh, drink koozies that are sent to us from Texas. We like make sure that every single thing that like comes in your little box uh, when it comes to you from box to the actual product is all made in America. It was a a little like sticking point for us in the beginning. It's like, if we're going to be made in America, we're going to have everything that we have yeah. made in America. We're not going to try and uh, go away from that. It's not always easy, but you know, we cared more about delivering on that promise than we did about making it easy for ourselves. Yeah. I'm still trying to find uh, American made shipping tape. So don't like people listening. Try not to like roast me in the fire. Uh, You're 98%. Yeah. The shipping tape is what I'm down to right now. Okay. Um, what kind of a vision do you have for, for this company in the long term? And also, you know, what are your immediate priorities? So kind of thinking long term, but also what is your priority right now? Yeah. So, uh, well, priority now is just to grow it to be a sustainable business uh, for us to, you know, just to like build a happy life around. Drew and I have had several conversations, you know, and sometimes we meet with investors and they'll say, you know, what's your five-year plan? What's your exit strategy? But, you know, we're we're not looking at this at, from an exit strategy and we're not trying to consider it a zero-sum game, I think. And so, like, at least for myself and I, I think for Drew as well, we're looking at creating a company that we can hopefully employ more people in the future and just build a nice, good quality, middle-class, like, just happy life that we're not trying to, you know, jump into this trap of, like, racing to the top, this cutthroat mentality where you have to get a job and then get the next job up and then get the next next job up and you're always overworking and you're never happy. And so, you know, at least for me, I'm completely happy with, uh, you know, living a good life and having a company that is uh, successful and, you know, uh, it doesn't need to be the number one company in any market. It just needs to be enough to be able to, you know, maybe get some jobs out there and, uh, you know, provide for me and my family in the future. I think that's a, a very noble and realistic goal. I mean, we see all this stuff, you know, you're, you have to have a billion dollar company you have to be mm-hmm. a unicorn. That's not for yeah. everyone. And, and, there's, and if you get to that place, you have to give up a lot in many different ways to get there. And it's, it's usually not what people think it's going to be. So I like well, that. I, also, I personally yeah. am approaching my business as well. So we're on the same page there. And I think um, the military, at least from my perspective, and I'm curious in your thoughts, it, it prepares you in certain ways for entrepreneurship. I was not expecting to find, I've done a lot of work for startups. I wasn't expecting to find a lot of parallels between military service and the startup environment and small businesses. But I found that the skills that it's required to be successful in the military are actually very translatable. So I'm curious um, if each of you have a thought on that and what, what part of your military experience actually prepared you to be successful in business? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that 
there's a lot of parallels. So uh, at least, and I can only really speak from my uh, experience, but in the Marines and in most of the military, leadership, critical thinking skills, and the ability to adapt are uh, you know highly uh, you know impressed upon you. And uh, you know, at least like when you're in places like Afghanistan or you're traveling around the world, your environment's adapting all the time. You have to be able to adapt. Sometimes the person that's in charge of you is nowhere near you and you have to be able to critically think and how to like overcome an obstacle. And I think that especially when you're starting a business, there's going to be constant times where there's obstacles to overcome, be it, you know, some of the stuff that we talked about before is just getting business licenses, making sure that you go through the the right processes, just setting up your accounts, finding your manufacturers, finding your vendors, finding your audience, setting up all these types of things. And you can't always be looking over your shoulder for someone to tell you what to do. You can't. You need to have the uh, you know the confidence in yourself to take the initiative, and you need to have the uh, critical thinking skills and the adaptability to like once you run into a roadblock, once you run into a problem, you've got to be able to see how you can either get over it, get under it, or get around it in whatever way possible. So I think that that you know, I, I think it. It's not that people that outside the military don't have those skills, but I think that people that have served in the military uniquely have skills like that that maybe other individuals don't. And if harnessed correctly, you know, they can be highly advantageous for anyone that's looking to start their own business. And on a side note, I think that, uh, you know, at least for me, a lot of military don't really uh, conform to authority well, which is odd. And so if you don't want to, uh, have anyone tell you what to do anymore. You just uh, step outside and do your own thing. <laughs> Isn't that weird that people who don't want to conform to authority end up joining the military, which is just a giant yep. authority. Yeah, I've thought about that a lot too. It's interesting. Yeah, little do they know when they're signing on that dotted line that it's all about trying to conform to authority and yet it never will happen. So, mm-hmm. uh, Drew, did you have anything to add to that? <laughs> How could I top that? That's <laughs> Um, well, this has been a, a really uh, interesting conversation. Uh, I, I've done a lot of work in like the manufacturing uh, space, albeit more in like the food and beverage space. So what you guys have done is, is very impressive, especially in such a short amount of time. So kudos to you, you. for figuring that out so quickly. Um, I'm curious to know if you have like your top, a top piece of advice that you might have for other vets who are considering starting a business or who are in the thick of it and are trying to build something. Sure. So I know, uh, you know, at least in the Marines, we had this one acronym that it wasn't a formal acronym, but it was one that we used all the time. And it was your seven P's. So uh, you may remember this. I don't know if you would, but it's uh, prior proper planning prevents piss poor performance. So uh, the one thing I would say is you can't like, even though we only uh, took 60 days to start our company, what that doesn't entail is that those were 16 hour days. Those were seven days a week. And when we weren't working, we were sleeping and working. We were getting up in the middle of the night and planning and planning and planning and planning, having tons of conversations where my fiance would be annoyed with me and his fiance would be annoyed with him because we're on the phone for six hours. You talk and, to Nick uh, more than you talk to me. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> so uh, it's all about like planning and the ability to, yeah, to, uh, Never take anything for granted and just plan as much as possible, uh, but also have the confidence to move forward. Don't be scared, uh, you know, that you're making the wrong decision sometimes. Uh, sometimes you just have to, you know, 
you have to put two feet into this. You can't, you can't just put one foot into a, uh, into an entrepreneurial venture or worry about whether or not it's going to succeed all the time. Sometimes you just have to take that leap. Yeah. 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 I think for me, it would be, um, just, just constant. You have the confidence to do it. Uh, I think a lot of times people, if they don't have a particular, a specific background in what they, their idea is or experience or whatever, that it's like, you know, I wouldn't know how to, it's like, well, nobody knows how to, I mean, always born knowing how to make an iPhone or, I mean, like everything is learned, right? Everything is learned. So you can learn anything. And just, I, I don't think, I don't think anybody in my family thinks I'm good at business because all I, I just ask them constantly like, Hey, is this is dumb. I got like, <laughs> I don't know. You tell me, is it, I, I think it's cool, but what do I know? So just constantly, um, seeking input and advice and diversifying that and researching and learning and trying, trying and failing, right. Iterating over and over. So, um, I think that's it. Just having the confidence to just do it anyway and just persevere. Uh, yeah. And it's not about, you know, self doubt or anything like that. Everybody has self doubt about everything. It's just, but if you just do just act, just action it anyway, right. Just continue to move forward. You can have that self-doubt running in the background, super loud, doesn't matter. Just as long as you're moving down the, the list of actions and tasks, that is what confidence is. That is actually doing the work. So, and then you'll learn, to, you'll learn the whole way through um, and be able to, to improve. So that would be it. I think just, you know, you have to have perseverance, you know, demonstrate. The only way to have perseverance is to, to act like you have perseverance, right? And then all of a sudden you look back and like, hey, wait. Holy shit, I did it. I'm here. So Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Confidence and um, you know, the thing that resonated me with me most about that is jumping in with both feet and just not taking no for an answer and continuing to learn and iterate. And mm-hmm. I, it's 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 impossible to half ass it in business if you want to be successful. So, you know, yeah. I agree. I think if you're in the military, you already joined when you were, you know, 18, 19, 20, 12. You already decided to put your life on the line. You've already done something to where you're willing to put, you know everybody else in front of you or like, you know, put everybody else's needs in front of you. You've already done something that is incredibly difficult and that most people out there wouldn't do. So you can start a company. You can like do this. You've already done something harder. I can tell you that. Like, you know, if you've been to, yeah, Yeah. no, no, it's not the hardest thing you're going to do. Your life is not going to be on the line. Your family is not going to be terrified about whether or not you're coming home. Mm -hmm. So you can get it done. Yeah. Puts puts things in perspective. Yeah. Being on the show is a great example. I think, uh, you know, you know, you could easily say, ah, I don't know if, you know, they'll, if the, if we can get on there, if they'll have us on, it's like, well, how do you know? Did they say no? It's like, well, no, it's like, okay. So mm-hmm. like ask, just ask. <laughs> My dad would always say that. It's like, you don't know until you ask. That's it. Just That's ask everybody. Smart guy. Smart guy. Um, well, thank you guys both so much for, for spending time with us. I really enjoyed our conversation. Can you let people know where to reach out if they'd like to get a hold of you? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, Nick at apexgearco.com. He's Drew at apexgearco.com. And you will be surprised, but our website is apexgearco.com. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. And I will include uh, that and uh, a couple of other notes in, in our show notes uh, for those of you who are listening. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. And I'm looking forward to seeing what happens uh, to Apex Gearco over, over the years. I'm sure you're going to be successful. Yeah, thank, thank you. Very much.
That's our show for today. For the show notes and a list of resources mentioned during the podcast, head over to veteranownedcollective.com slash podcast. Tune in next week for our conversation with Clayton Hinchman, the CEO of Ignite and the chairman of Black Patch Distilling Company. And if you're a veteran business owner or a supporter of veteran business owners, make sure to check us out at veteranownedcollective.com.